Now you hear it. When you're a child, you learn there are three dimensions. Height, width, and depth. Like a shoebox. Then later you hear there's a fourth dimension. Time. From Seattle, we're drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. What are we drinking today? We're drinking the same thing that we did last week. Um, Silver City Brewing's Ride the Spiral. It's a nice little um, springish beer. A little bit floral, kind of orangey. But uh, also a little bit of an IPA kick to it. Tastes pretty good. Weather is good here in Seattle. Spring is in the air. The beer fits. The parks are closed. That they are. We remain inside. But um, this is our first film criticism episode because I was reading the Oxford Dictionary of Film very unpretentiously. And I noticed um, the definition of film criticism, which I'll, I'll do a brief reading of now to show folks what inspired the, the new format occasionally. Film criticism is a form of writing that examines the achievement distinctiveness and quality of a film or lack of it the term is used to refer to a wide range of writing on film ranging from reviews of the latest releases to certain types of scholarly film theoretical inquiry such as genre criticism generally however film criticism is produced after one or is considered a separate activity from film reviewing a film review which is what we normally do will usually be produced after one viewing and is primarily designed to help potential viewers decide whether or not to watch the film. A review will usually not contain spoilers. We ignore that. Crucial information relating to the film's plot, especially its ending. In contrast, film criticism will tend to discuss the film in its entirety and seek to deepen, reveal, expand, sharpen, and or confront a potential viewer's understanding in a way that goes beyond simply deciding whether or not the film is worth seeing. So that was the impetus of my idea, Michael, to cover a film that we would watch multiple times, look into the creator of that film, and try to have a deeper discussion than what we normally have. Um, although all those definitions involve writing, and we are much lazier than that, and this is discussion, I still think that there is a point to be had so we're going to give this a try um once every month roughly of doing a deep dive into a film entry from a director that we're enticed by or a project that we're enamored with and this week we're going to do gone girl that's right i think if you go back to some of our very first episodes at the show we did like five movies sometimes in a single oh episode. i think the first episode was like eight yeah a good handful um so it'll be nice to, uh, from time to time, just focus on one movie and uh, talk about it in a little more depth. Um, I don't know that I approached it all that differently from how I normally think about the movies that we're um, going to talk about it. I, the, uh, I just spent more time uh, thinking than I ordinarily get to um, and just have more time to mull it over and more time to, to chew on it um did you approach it differently than you would most movies I, I think you know the answer to that already i definitely did 
I I watched quite a bit of homework for David Fincher in the last week and a half. I, I rewatched his um, directorial debut, which is the third film in the Alien series, which was titled Alien Cubed, which is a three above Alien, which is a very interesting film in that it's got some really good stuff and some very terrible stuff, but the sincerity won me over. Then I did Seven, I did Fight Club, um, I did Gone Girl, obviously, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, I did skip The Social Network because I've watched it very recently, Zodiac and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which are my favorites, and then two movies that I really enjoyed from him were Panic Room and The Game, which I have loose memories of watching as a child or knowing about as a child, but this is my first adult experience with them. Yeah, Panic Room is definitely the one I remember the least. It's one I've seen, but way back in the day, so I will have I really no like connections it. to be made there. I, I, I don't know that I would say there's too much connection um, at all between these two, but I, I do really like that film. So we will be covering Gone Girl, but first we're going to do a preview of the film we're going to cover in depth next. And that is Steven Soderbergh's Aaron Brockovich, starring Julia Roberts. You ready to uh, watch the trailer for that and give your initial thoughts before we cover it, Michael? Let's do it. You might want to rethink those ties. Why are there medical records and blood samples in real estate files? Would you mind if I investigate this a little further? What makes you think you can just walk in there and find what we need? They're called boobs, Ed. Can I just... Yeah, just... Exavalent chromium can be very harmful. So it kills people. Oh, yeah. You're a lawyer? Hell no. I hate lawyers. I just work for them. We're going to have to spend a little time filling in the holes in your research. Don't talk to me like I'm an idiot, okay? I think we got off on the wrong foot here. That's all you got, lady. Two wrong feet and ugly shoes. You gotta find a different job or a different guy. For the first time in my life, I got people respecting me. Please, don't ask me to give it up. You're emotional, you're erratic, you make this personal, and it isn't. That is my work, my sweat, my time away from my kids. If that's not personal, I don't know what is. We're gonna get them here, then, aren't we? They're all signed, every single one. How did you do this? Seeing as how I have no brains or legal expertise, I just went up there and performed 634 sexual favors. <laughs> I'm really quite tired. All right, we just watched the trailer for Steven Soderbergh's Aaron Brockovich, the next movie we'll be taking a closer look at in the near future. I haven't seen this movie in a very long time. I might not have even seen this from start to finish back in the day. I just have vague memories of this. Um, have you seen this before multiple times? This is one of the few movies that I got on the Columbia Pictures mailer selector. Ah. So uh, this and The Matrix and Legally Blonde um, are movies that did frequent my my childhood in the VHS player. Um, I think those were our three selections. I might be missing one, but I'm pretty sure those are the three that we ended up with. Um, the Matrix was mine, obviously. Legally Blonde was my mom's. And then Aaron Brockovich was, I don't know why, but it ended up being the film that I rewatched and rewatched and rewatched and rewatched and... That's probably where my Soderbergh love began, to be honest. Um, this trailer's very 90s. Very 90s. I'm all about it. Uh, you know, it's almost like a cliche now to describe movies like this as, quote, the kind of movie they don't make anymore, the kind of, you know, star-driven, 
drama for adults, not a social issue, um, that I am more than happy to revisit. The thing about that statement is that they do make those movies, and it's called Dark Waters. That is true. I think I we might have described it that way. Yes, I, I think we did. Um, so, just based on the trailer, are you happy that this is going to be a movie we're going to be spending a lot of time with? Or uh, how are you reacting to it? I think Sex, Lies, and Videotape might be the only movie you've seen before this Soderbergh film. Am I wrong there? Well, I would have to really think in, about what was the first Soderbergh movie I ever saw. I'm not sure. But well, I Sex, am... Lies, and Videotape is the first one you've seen. It, chronologically. In his filmography. That is correct. Yeah. So is, correct. is there anything else in his f- filmography between then and then that, that you'd seen? Or is this kind of entry number two um, in the in the timeline for you? Probably number two. I'd have to look at my list of Soderbergh's to confirm but i believe it's number two okay i mean you might have seen arrows i have not seen arrows okay um yeah i'm thrilled it's gonna be enjoyable to um to pick apart uh, a very different performance um than what we're gonna be examining today and Mm -hmm. someone that's a little bit more um that i would say shoots a little bit differently than Fincher. I I don't quite know how to begin to describe the differences, but Soderbergh definitely puts a lot of attention in the camera, whereas Fincher puts a lot of attention on momentum of storytelling. I think that Mm. Fincher sees things from a story standpoint first. Um, That might be where I'd begin, but um, let's wrap this up and get on to Gone Girl, huh? All right. Beautiful wife, handsome husband. Wife goes missing on her anniversary. What's your name? Amy. So Amy? I hit her? Absolutely not. I never touched her. You bumped up Amy's life insurance to 1.2 million. She told me to. I've seen this girl around here. She wanted a gun. The hallmark of a sociopath is a lack of empathy. You talk like a man who believes his wife is still alive. They're framing me for her murder. Where to begin? At the end? Is that where you begin at? That is one strategy. I I think everyone's probably seen this movie. If anyone hasn't, it's about some crazy shit that happens in which a woman frames a man for her murder. And that woman is married to that man. And that woman is played by Rosamund Pike. And the man is played by Ben Affleck. The screenplay is an adapted screenplay based on the novel of Gillian Flynn, who also wrote the screenplay. I believe this was one of her first screenplays ever, um, and it's one of the best adapted screenplays, um, I think, pretty unanimously, even though I'm still out um, on how I feel about this movie. I I do think it's a a decent screenplay at bottom. Um, Anything you want to contribute? I would say that maybe just to start by uh, describing where we come at this movie from i did read the book way back in the day when it first came out really enjoyed the book um i was surprised and excited by the big twist um i saw the movie when it came out in theaters um re-watching it for the podcast was the first time i had revisited it since um and so having read the book it's a little hard for me to 
uh, evaluate the movie as um, or to assess really how well it works as a mystery because I never experienced this movie without knowing where it's going. Um, I believe you did not read the book, correct? No, I didn't read the book before it came out, and then I read the book in 2016-ish. Okay. 2017. It's somewhere in there. It's one of those books I picked up for 50 cents and just thumbed through, and I didn't really like it, is the only way I can put it. Um, I didn't dislike it or anything. It's just not a a book that grabbed me. Um, Yeah. Um, I guess maybe take a step back and say, David Fincher is very good at adapting stories to film, I think. Um, in his early career, he obviously continued Alien with Alien 3. Um, and I will probably just passively spoil everything that we're going to talk about. So fair warning, if there's a David Fincher movie you haven't seen, I might spoil it. Um, Alien 3's introduction in the credits undoes everything that the film aliens does it literally <laughs> kills every single person as well as the robot just in the introduction besides sigourney weaver and it you come to find out that sigourney weaver is impregnated by an alien queen carrying an alien queen bad news it's a brutal take on the franchise which i think shows up early in fincher brutality Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box in the end of seven. The game is one of the most brutal films I've ever seen. Panic room is a smothering abuse film. Essentially. Um, the rape we see in, um, the girl with the dragon tattoo is very believable to, to say the least. Um, he has a penchant for showing us stories from a point of view. What Gone Girls does that's weird is it straddles two different points of view. And the only way that you know you're being duped, I think, to me, is the soundtrack. Without Trent Reznor and Atticus uh, Ross? Or Atticus Atticus Ross? Yeah. Yeah. I always think Atticus Finch. Oh, yeah. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Yeah. No, I prefer Trent Reznor and Atticus Finch in my head. Um so that that score when they get on the elevator in the beginning of near the beginning of the film you hear everything kind of go underwater Mm. and that's just this clue that the entire point of view of this narrative just changed and that you can't trust anything and then you won't even notice when you come out of being underwater but you do and that's when you believe that you can trust again um and and using that to clue passively to the viewer of where you're at in the narrative i think is the thing that makes gone girl work over and over and over and over hmm. it's interesting i do love the score i don't know that there is a trent reznor and atticus ross score that i don't like um it is strange. ones that you haven't heard yet yeah exactly. because you haven't heard them yet yeah. and you're mad exactly um it's an oddly soothing score, but, you know, it's soothing in a way that feels kind of false or suspicious in a way. And I think that sort of f- almost false sense of hope in that score, along with the really bitter sarcasm in Pike's narration from Amy, um, makes me wonder if 
someone watching this movie for the first time would feel it was a little too obvious that she might have a hand in all of this. Um, to me, that you're right, it does suggest a point of view. It all feels like it's from the point of view of a person in this marriage whose perspective on it has totally curdled and and still feels very much alive and angry about it. Um, yes, but that right, like that is a distinct part of the film, maybe even half or third of the film. And then when Ben Affleck is interacting with Tyler Perry, you don't have any of that sense. When when he's interacting with his sister. Flashbacks. Yeah. Yeah. Or even when she's narrating and throwing pens out the window. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, like that even then has that underwater, I can't trust this. I don't know what time is. This is someone playing something. They're not a real thing. Um, Which is very interesting. I, I think that the film that I would point to that came earlier in his career, that this is the most like to me is the game with Michael Douglas in which he's enlisted by his brother into a game. His brother's played by Sean Penn. Um, And the pitch is Michael Douglas is an extremely wealthy man who you can't get anything for. So he makes him part of this game that you play in real life and you don't know what it is, when it's going to start, where it ends, what the rules are, what's, what's real, what's not. And, um, it gets pretty fucked up. It gets extremely fucked up. It gets brutally messed up. And that's kind of what this is. Cause you don't know what's real if you're watching it for the first time. And even when you watch it a second time, there is stuff about Ben Affleck that you don't know that you can believe or trust. Like that. He says that he was going to get a divorce. Was he really going to get a, a divorce because she had everything? Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I said, it's, it's just so tough for me to imagine coming to this for the first time and seeing those scenes where he, you know, picks his, picks up his burner phone out of the glove compartment when his, when he's in the car with his dad, um, or he's, you know, darting over to his, to his dad's house, trying to not let the police on and let them know he's doing it. Um, well, let's take a look for clue three. Yeah, just the ex- the extent to which this leads you to think he might have actually been involved in this. I don't know that it's that convincing. I think the oh um, yeah, that was like no. a very big part of the of the book, which I I won't go too much into the book. Yes. But I think that is a aspect of the movie that is um, that Fincher is like a little less interested in is trying to convince you that he might have had a role in this or that. It's really 50-50 what happened here. Mm. Yeah. Yes, There, there's a lot there. I, I think that that's one of the deepest insights I had doing all my Fincher homework and watching this so many times is um, Fincher kind of has two modes to me. He has his moral f- filmmaking side, which I think shows up in Zodiac and Seven, where he's exploring his own morality. And he's exploring anti-heroes versus heroes and um, the the heroism in hanging up um, and, and giving up and giving life a chance instead of sticking with old tragedy. And then he has another side, which is he read a book 
And he really, really, really wants to share that book with audiences using a camera. And this and Gone Girl and Fight Club are those movies to me where he just really wants to share how he saw the book in his head. And he can't wait to do it. And the way that he sees being able to share that book is very different than the book, in essence. And that's just a a sacrifice that he never even considered as a sacrifice because it's how he envisioned sharing the book using a camera for a bigger audience. And it's just about what is that story? How do I share it? Which I think is the reason why he's so loved in cinema is there's a passive earnestness to every single one of his films, no matter how negative it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think he's very interested in irony. He seems like a very ironic filmmaker to me. That's kind of what lends, uh, what uh, maybe earns him, you know, the uh, description of as, as a postmodern filmmaker, I guess. Um, to me, this is a very bleakly funny movie. Do you mean um, the line, he's so hot. Ew. There are from those many. two women. Yes, absolutely. That is one of them. Some are more obvious than others, but I do kind of think that if you don't see some of the pitch black humor in this, I I would suspect you might not get as much out of this movie. But I characterized it a few different ways in my head. One and one of them was as just this twisted pitch black take on the comedy of remarriage genre um we watched an example of that just a few weeks ago when we watched uh the lady eve by preston sturges yes you know this classic hollywood formula of a couple coming together or being together at the start of a film they have a falling out or separation of some kind some kind of escapism or excitement or comedy follows suit and then they're ultimately brought back together usually that came with uplift um you know, studios would want to tap into people's familiarity with marriage, but ultimately give them a sense of optimism to bring them back for that same formula again. And here, yes. Fincher's very ironically bringing the couple back together in as, you know... A death trap. Exactly. You know, he has dodged his actual prison sentence only to be sort of imprisoned in his marriage. Um, I think if you, I have a hard time imagining someone really getting a lot out of it if you don't see the irony and the the humor in a lot of that. Yes, yeah, and I think that essentially the I- irony is almost always present whenever there's a real emotion to be felt by um, the twin character Margot, played by Carrie Coon. She's, to me, basically the voice of me as a viewer. When she reacts to stuff, she's saying what I believe most viewers are thinking in that moment. Um, near the end, it's, I can't believe you're going to go play house with that bitch for the rest of your life. Um, in the beginning, it's, I don't think you're telling me the whole truth. Then she finds out that he was indeed sleeping with Emily Ratajkowski. Um, and she you know, delivers that flawless line with like nine fucks in it. I can't fucking believe you fucking piece of shit that you didn't fucking tell me that you were fucking that college slut, you fucking idiot. Something like that. Yeah. And it's just, she's a, she's a Chicago um, actress who 
does stage plays a little bit more often than she does film and TV, but she's had big turns in like the leftovers and she was a CG character in the Avengers stuff. She's had big parts. She's married to Tracy Letts who audience, who the audience might know a little bit better, but here she just creates a grounded reality that allows Ben Affleck to be the opposite of Rosamund Pike here. Without Carrie Coon, there isn't a flawed moral compass based in reality for Ben to play off of. But because she's there, he gets to be the opposite of Rosamund Pike in this film. And I think that that's one of the keys to how Fincher chose to share the story. Without having her be that important and played by someone who interacts with her environment, if you go back and you watch when they're pulling up to the house after he gets bail bonded out of jail, the way she's interacting with her seatbelt and the door handle, she's a real person in that car. So many actresses wouldn't go that far, and that's what makes it work. I don't know that I like this movie, but it definitely is a movie that works, and she's so responsible for that. Yeah, she is far and away the most rational person in this movie, the person like I, I most identify with mm-hmm. and just sort of approve of. Um I think I find I do take a lot of satisfaction in Pike's Amy exacting her revenge, essentially, after catching her apathetic husband's infidelity, catching him in the act. Um, But the extremity of it it is obviously kind of repulsive and at the same time kind of comically absurd. But you also don't pity Ben Affleck. Like, I don't think this is ultimately about... I I don't think there is, like, a a deep or, or, or strain of misogyny here. I don't think this is about really feeling bad for Ben Affleck in the end because he's so indifferent to everything as we go. Um, so Well, that would be misandry, right? Um, well, I think if the movie was um, more interested in getting us to sympathize with Ben Affleck for mm-hmm. being the victim in this situation, I think there would be some misogyny in that because I think there's a lot of evidence that he was um, not a great husband. I think what's kind of ironic to me is that like in the very first sentence of the movie, he says he wants to crack her open her head and understand and what's inside her brains. Right. But then in the police station, he can't tell us anything about her. It's like he's never even tried. So you got to the bar around 11 today. Where were you before that? Just to cross that off. Well, I was home. I left at 930. got a cup of coffee, newspaper. I went to Sawyer Beach and read the news. Did you visit with anyone there? Well, I mean, I kind of go to Sawyer Beach for the solitude. So, your wife has no friends here. Is she kind of standoffish? Ivy League? Rubs people the wrong way? She's from New York. She's complicated. She's got very high standards. Type A? Well, that can make you crazy if you're not like that. You seem pretty laid back. Type B. Speaking of which, Amy's blood type. God, I don't know. I have to look it up at the house. You don't know if she has friends. You don't know what she does all day, and you don't know your wife's blood type. Sure, y'all are married. I, I maybe it's typo. Where are her folks? New York. Yeah. Can they get here in time for this press conference tomorrow? Tomorrow? I have no idea. I haven't talked to them. You haven't called your wife's parents. I yet? mean, you can't get a signal in this building. I've been in here talking to you. Well, call them, please, Nick. Now. Hi. 
I know my wife's blood type. Um, so I, I don't think it really encourages a great deal of empathy um, with him. So it kind of, it toes that line between letting us have some satisfaction in, let, in her getting back at him without us feeling bad for him, um, but also being kind of frightened by her, obviously. Yeah, so that's where my criticism of Fincher kicks in. He sacrifices, I think, some authenticity in order to create the roller coaster effect, right? He he delivers that as the opening monologue of the film. Um, I envision cracking my wife's brain open and unspooling um, her lovely brains or whatever that, that line is. And then we see him outside, come inside, come outside, get in the car, get out of the car. And then he's walking to the bar with a board game called Mastermind under his arm. That's all very conscious storytelling from Fincher to try to implicate Affleck as the first point of judgment as the the villain of the piece so that later he can play with you and bounce you back to the other side and back to the other side and back to the other side. The thing about that is it doesn't work after one viewing when you already know what's going to happen. So once you already know what's going to happen, I think that stuff, it doesn't completely fall apart, but it, it really doesn't belong there in a, in a permanent film that someone already knows the existence of. It's about the first ride. It's about the first thrill of the roller coaster for that stuff to be there. When you're not on the first ride, that stuff doesn't deliver any goods. I think I would disagree. I think I do still get something out of that because it's partly in Ben Affleck's performance, which really works for me, and how just the body language communicates his apathy and his indifference to uh, her safety that suggests why she is so upset after having tried so hard to be the the quote-unquote cool wife that she thought he wanted her to be. Um, I think you need that to get a sense for how um, maddening it would be to be trying so hard to be somebody that you, you think somebody wants you to be and to only receive that kind of shrug that he seems to always be carrying with him. I think you, I think you need that in those scenes. I, I don't disagree with that. Um, I think that what you're talking about are, is happening in lots of other scenes and doesn't really happen in the scenes I'm referencing, to be honest. What, when because he's laying on a pillow he's he's not disregarding her he's i think looking into her eyes and like moving her hair in the beginning when he delivers that line and then when he's walking into the bar with the mastermind game um n- none of that is showing the to me the the shrug of apathy mm-hmm. Um, that, that you're referencing. I think that you get that shrug of apathy when he's sitting down complaining about the um, the game uh, that they play every anniversary. And then you're more intrigued by the fact that Margot doesn't like her, but also doesn't want to not like her more, um, which makes Margot very endearing because she acknowledges that she just doesn't get along with her, but that she doesn't want to not get along with her. Mm. She doesn't wish her ill. 
Fair enough. If you're talking about the very first shot, I agree. That's that's not about his apathy. No, that's, about that's his all I'm talking wonder. about. Yeah, yes, right? it's just those two beats of the mastermind game underneath the arm, delivering it to the bar, right? Mm. And then the beginning point. Those are two things. There are two pictures of Jack Sparrow on the on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride that are cluing mm. you into this is the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, right? This is a a um a crime ride where you're gonna not know who did it. It's a who done it, and you're not supposed to know who did it yet, and so these are your two first clues to give you a false lead. And I think that on rewatch, those false lead first clues really don't contribute to the film, and for me detract from it. Oh, I completely disagree. I think the first shot is perfect in the dialogue, obviously suggesting his potential interest in hurting her out of out of frustration out of out of hatred out of trying to understand who she is but at the same time that look is so perfectly enigmatic to me like there's innocence to it but then as she's like laying her head down you sense that hint of menace i think that's like a perfect opening shot and then it's bookended of course by the end um i so that's interesting i might be willing to agree that the shot's great it's just the narration it's the line delivery of that Mm. um of of saying i want to crack her skull open and unspool her i'm not disputing it's a great sentence it's perfect in a book because you're not you're playing a different game when you're making cinema and i've rewatched this so much that to me it's that line delivery that, that becomes the problem the narration of that and then bouncing narration to rosamond and never going back to narration to ben yeah so it's it's a weird tone up um that to me is just it's a false lead at the beginning of the roller coaster ride that's the only way mm. i can uh, you know i i do think it's interesting to see the physicality of that performance that he does give it's a mm. very physical performance that he cues the, us into yeah yeah i his performance is definitely one of the things that works for me from him it's partly about body language and and how he communicates what feels like just a constant shrug about it for her it's maybe a little bit more about tone of voice partly just because it's so much narration and that bitter sarcasm i I find just kind of amusing um the very first line is i am so crazy stupid happy um with the the pink pen that just kind of plays into that with the fuzzy end yeah yeah that just kind of plays into that image of you know, girlishness that she sort of weaponizes against Affleck's character. Um, and then, she, you know, Pike in in a physical sense can just hold those stares so long that just, again, seem to kind of at once have that sort of natural human innocence at the same time that it has this sort of frightening quality to it that she just feels like she's staring through you i I really like the performance does does what she's doing work for you or no yeah a hundred percent it's just perfect casting with her there's no one else that could be so traditionally beautiful but so brutal just so brutal like you look at her and you think she's a killer like no questions about it she can kill but she's also performing to be what she isn't which makes you more um nervous as the film goes on and she's not acting who she is and she's never really acting as who she is ever in the entire film Mm. which is 
something that I think only I, I can't really think of another actress that could pull that off, right? Like Alicia Silverstone couldn't do that. That's that's like the first person that comes to mind for me for some sort of a, a beauty that can also be a little bit more terrifying than uh, Nicole Kidman or something, but they can't really do that, you, you know? I mean, and Monster kind of pulled it off, but had to sacrifice beauty to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that Rosamond is a unique actress in that, and this is a, a unique story where you need an actress to do something that most actresses have never trained to do, which is be a serial killer, mm-hmm. but act entitled about it. Yeah. Um, in addition to seeing it or reading it as a, a dark take on the comedy of remarriage, the second way I would look at it is just as a very pulpy Hitchcockian thriller in one way it is that is that she fits the bill of that icy blonde that we see mm-hmm. in so many of Hitchcock's movies. Um, and I, don't know, I, th- I think her performance maybe peaks for me, maybe when uh, she goes to um, who is Neil Patrick Harris's character's name? Um, Desi. D- right? Yeah. Dizzy or Desi. Desi. Yeah. Once she starts um, fawning over him, like the obviousness of it, I think there's humor in that too. Um I think that's maybe where the performance peaks just again, because she's switching roles again. Um, And the, yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just fun, fun to watch. My favorite scene for her is when she is in the wheelchair. Oh yeah. And choosing to have an interrogation from way comedically way irony all the way up to many FBI agents. And the um, police officer, whose name is escaping me right now, is sitting in the back. And she's trying to grill her. And Rosamund Pike just keeps playing up this role. And all these men are falling for it like idiots. Mm -hmm. And she's like the only woman there to call it out. But the FBI overranks her, so she can't actually press the point of none of this making sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think everything with Desi through that scene that you just mentioned is what really makes me think that this movie would not get have gotten the response it did or it would just play very differently were it, to, were it to come out now in the post me too era i don't think people would be as amused by a story about a woman who is falsely accusing her husband of abuse and then setting a guy up um who she then murders as having raped her you know it's uh this came out in 2014 that it was a very different climate and yeah. I, I can only imagine like the 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 difference in reactions i suppose well i, th- I think gillian flynn's um sharp objects kind of showed us that you know even though that was a good project and everyone agrees that it's pretty well made it didn't get a strong critical reception i think because the audience just didn't want to have a teenage serial killer that's a girl um, killing girls. I, I think that that's, that's definitely a shift in the culture, especially since this came out, right? When this film came out, most of the conversation was, are, are which team are you on? And then mm-hmm. is it a misogynistic film or a misandristic film? Mm-hmm. Those were the two conversations, which I think are really limited and actually have no real bearing on the film when you look at it for a, a while. 
you know, both characters are contemptible. One is more contemptible than the other because she commits murders. Mm. Whereas the other, and had framed someone for rape. Um, Scoot McNary's character, which we haven't gotten to yet. Um, mm. And then Ben Affleck, who's just a normal piece of shit type. Yeah, yeah. I think to the extent it plays as, like, meaningful feminist fiction, it kind of works for me up until that point, I guess. There is some satisfaction. There is something about the sense of freedom in that very first scene where we see her driving away in the car that is satisfying in her sort of relieving herself of this strain she's been under to live up to this image of perfection that you know her parents have put on her along with this effort to be this quote-unquote cool guy to her husband i think there is satisfaction to be had in that um but then the absurdity of the elenks it goes to i think maybe undermines it a little bit even though that is sort of just the pulpy fun of the movie too so you kind of lose one thing and gain another because where it goes is is pretty entertaining yeah i definitely didn't feel any of that when she gets in the car no no it's she's been planning to do something to him for so long there's so much premeditation that i'm not on her side in this film at all i'm occasionally on ben affleck's side when it's presented that i should be but really, I'm just on Tyler Perry and Carrie Coon's side. That's essentially the perspective I have on the film. I want Tanner to win the case, and I want Carrie Coon to be happy. Tyler Perry's hilarious. He's such a good actor here. It is absurd how good of an actor he is outside of his own films. And I only say that because I don't watch his films. I'm sure he's a great actor in them too, but in these dramatic roles, whenever he's given a chance, he really just destroys he's a killer i would love to see him in a jordan peele film yeah my favorite line is when they first meet and it's right after he's done laughing and ben affleck says something like are you laughing me out of the building and he says are you kidding i'm in oh i'm way in it's hilarious (laughs) uh yeah we don't see him enough on screen apparently well that might be more due to our cinematic choices than the amount of content that he's put out true um yeah, since we're kind of talking about performances, I also very much liked Neil Patrick Harris. I think he's perfectly oily. Um, did he work for you or no? Yes. I don't know who else could play that role that's so limited but has to communicate so much. Um, his ability to react to everything that, that Rosamond is giving as Amy is what what his entire performance is. And I don't think that very many other actors could have the same frame as him, number one, be as suave as him, number two, and be as, as, as waspy and interested but unaffectionate. And I think that a lot of that comes from who we as viewers know him as. Definitely. Which is not mm-hmm. someone who is heterosexual. It's a very inspired casting. <laughs> and and number two, he's this guy that can just make every single thing interesting by paying attention to it. He's one of those mm-hmm. special actors who, when he pays attention to something, it'll either make you smile or pay attention to whatever it is that he's paying attention to. Yeah. Yeah. The very first interact, or not very first, but the interaction between 
Affleck and him when Affleck's character goes to his house and he's asking him questions and he says something like, you know, that's an odd question. And then his tone shifts and he says, that's a rude question. Yeah. The very next line. Perfect. Like little shift in tone. I love it. Um, yeah. And again, like I, I cannot remember what it was like to get familiar with that character without knowing that he is ultimately the victim of Rosamund Pike's character. But, um, you don't have to try and think about to what extent would you have thought that he was actually the conspirator, the one behind all this. Um, maybe. I don't know. You, you thought he was behind all this? No, no, no. I'm saying I, I don't know that that the, that the movie would have done an excellent job at, at making me think he was behind all of this. Uh, I think that was kind of the idea, right? Is to put him out there as a p- potential suspect a potential. until, until yeah. the halfway point. Well, we're so far away from doing a first viewing on this that I I do remember having my interest peaked when I saw it in the theater that it could be him because we see him at the Coffee and Donuts meeting um, with Ben Affleck um, when he gives the guy the donuts and... Um, and uh, Patrick Fugit's character starts, you know, rallying against him. And then we see him again um, one more time, I think, before Ben shows up on his doorstep. And then she calls someone, and we don't know who she calls in the parking lot. So I, I think on my first viewing, I, I was considering that he could have a hand in it. Um, and... It only works in that first viewing, unfortunately. Yeah, makes sense. Um, yeah, for me, I, it's just on a moment-to-moment basis. I enjoy the performances enough that I think I, I continue to get value out of the repeat viewings just because with him, for example, he's just so oily. I just, I, I don't know, there's there's just something fun about uh, watching him do his thing. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, what else the uh the gear shift itself um do you like the structure of this story hmm. for me that was the other big hitchcock connection you know that is the uh psycho-esque gear shift right that halfway through the movie something is majorly revealed that changes how we um view this story um that's like being the first movie to do that um so it's almost kind of like a movie of two halves and then an epilogue in a way um which i i don't know i just i i i i appreciate just the the uniqueness of the structure to some degree it's it's complex because there's two things in play when i try to react to that right it's the me feigning any essence of objectivity, right? Because art is so non-objective that in a, in a loose, morally ambiguous version of objectivity, I do love it because I think that everybody that comes to this film for the very first time is going to be so enraptured and gripped by this ride that that gear shift plays perfectly into slowly dollying you up this track right before a giant dive on this roller coaster. And that is so cool and so fun for first time viewing. But as me who's seen it a bunch, I 
don't feel that strongly about it. I think that there's a lot of stuff that I just question as marshmallows in the hot chocolate, I guess. There's just a lot mm. of marshmallows in this movie, if if I'm going to use that metaphor. there's I don't know how much I need of stuff. There's certain scenes where it's just like that is the perfect scene, one of which is when Ben is brought into the police station and is being interrogated, and they ask him his wife's blood type, and then they ask him if he's told his wife's parents yet. And he says no. And she says, well, go call him. And then he goes to call him. And he's on the phone and he hands it off to the detective. And then he hears um, someone talking about his dad. And just that whole sequence and how that's shot. That's one of like the greatest pieces of cinema I can think of for like an unraveling character. When something's going wrong, just how everything just continues to go wrong within this one logistically tight space um and then there's other moments that are just the opposite of that like when they're in the office and she takes the red panties out of the of the slot when he just found the clue and he's reading it that it just makes no sense because she's such a smart cunning detective that it seems like she wouldn't want to pull out more evidence that would implicate him and make him shut down when he just found a new clue and she needs an answer to whatever that clue is. But instead, she pulls the red panties out and then has him on the end of her pen and is sliding him into the Ziploc bag, asking him what the brown house is. And it's like, of course he's not going to fucking tell you. You just found implicating evidence. Like, there's just little things that go a long way to destroy the the great stuff that's been built up for me. Yeah. Yeah, that one I could see just as sort of a grading of the plot mechanics in that scene, perhaps, that could be irritating. The stuff with the dad, I could see the satisfaction in the, like, staging and craft of that scene. I was actually feeling like, most the dad's kind of involvement in the story is mainly just in service of plot rather than sort of like the essence of the movie like if you are looking at this as sort of a movie saying something about marriage or the media or if it is just that hitchcockian pulp in a way the stuff with the dad never plays much of a role in it i actually thought like i wonder if that could have been um cut out some degree i kind of thought the dad yeah. like would become a figure but he, he doesn't play much of a role it, it serves as a conceit right it's it's how to get out of the police station just moves things along i guess yeah because everything already happened in that scene and so that's something else but then it introduces this extra house that used to be the brown house which is another place that he would go have extramarital affairs in mm-hmm. and it's where the diary is stored um so it, i mean it, it's all serving plot mechanics absolutely and there's a there's a fair criticism of the dad even being present but as a piece of framing and scale out um falling down a well mm. to a character mm. like what ben affleck goes to in those three rooms and how just it's shot that from one side of the door through the doorway through the other doorway is just really cool filmmaking can't argue with that um yeah and then aside from it being either a comedy of remarriage, a pitch black version of that Hitchcockian thriller, on another hand, the media satire element of this movie, does that do much for you or no? 
Yes, I it didn't the first rewatch. I didn't even clue into it, really. It was just like a thing that was happening in the background. And then like the third rewatch that I had um, doing all these rewatches, I noticed that there were people like eating in the background, sitting on lawn chairs behind the news media. Oh, yeah. Like across the street. And yeah. Stuff. And that's yeah, when yeah. I started getting to it. And if you listen to the commentary, actually, <laughs> those are real people that were showing up to watch the shoot Perfect. eating popcorn in their lawn chairs. So meta. And um, oh, ni- nice line delivery from the movie. Um, and the PA told or like the second unit director told Fincher that don't worry, by the time you start rolling, I'll get these guys cleared out. And Fincher was like, no, that's exactly what I want. Leave those people in there. <laughs> He's like, that's exactly what I'm going for, actually. <laughs> yeah, this that's is perfect. Awesome. I love that. So, uh, no, I, that that is the crucial irony is the, I mean, God, we haven't even talked about the worst character in the whole film. Missy Pyle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the more hilarious takes that the media has on this is that Ben Affleck and his sister might have a relationship of of some An kind. An incestual relationship. Yeah, yes. yeah. The absurdity in that. I got a, a, a kick out of Ben Affleck is like in the airport when he sees that on the television and someone behind him is like twin sex, dude. That's what it is. Twincest. Yeah. Like if you don't see the comedy in that, then like, yeah, I think this is just not for you. <laughs> Correct. Cor- or that vein of this isn't for you. I think this movie yeah. actually has a little bit of something for everyone. Which is why I I do think that it is probably a modern masterpiece as far as those mm. go. Like, I think that this is something you can show in 30 years and trick an audience with to go on the full ride. Mm. Which to me is somewhat of what this genre of filmmaking is. That's why I don't dislike. It's just not my favorite fincher movie by a long shot um i i guess where did it land for you this is up there for me yeah um what's your favorite fincher film i think zodiac is still probably my number one is that yours yep nice have you done a ranking since you have revisited i have it's set to private i'm gonna unlock Mm. it and make it public today release it to the world yeah where and where is gone girl top near the bottom. bottom near the bottom near the bottom yeah. If not the bottom. I haven't adjusted yet because I did just rewatch it for the fifth time with mm. commentary or 5.3 times. It's been a long. I've watched quite a bit of Gone Girl in the last month. Um, yeah. And the more I watch it, the less I gravitate towards it. And the more I think that it's incredibly well manufactured, mm-hmm. but not something suited to my personal taste Mm. and when it comes to film rankings i totally abandon the idea of being objective and it's just like what do i love or you know that that uh the sentiment um that most djs have of like what do you fuck with like what what do you want on right now what do you want to shimmy to um and this just isn't a movie that I'm going to select to... To shimmy to. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now you're speaking my language. I'm much rather going to toss on the game or panic room and just be put into a smother. And I love Zodiac, but I actually don't like to rewatch it because the longer I wait, the less I remember. Mm. So if I wait about four to five years and then rewatch it, 
I won't remember all the beats and then I get to go on the ride again, which is my favorite part of it. Um, what's your second favorite venture, I guess? Uh, I would have to look back at my ranking. I don't know that there's like an obvious one, two, three, except for the Zodiac, Gone Girl, but um, the game, perhaps. The game, yeah. Yeah. Ton of fun. Right? Yeah. That um, ending. Oh my goodness. Great twist. <laughs> you think someone's dead and someone's committing suicide and then you're like, what the hell just happened? It's pretty fun. Um, but yeah, something like Zodiac, I, I sense more depth to something like Zodiac. You know, I can talk about Gone Girl as a movie about these kinds of things, things like marriage and uh, the, the media, but I, I do think it, it is a shallow examination of those things to some extent it just makes up for that with pulpy fun for me yeah and um, I, I think the real measure of why this goes down is i think i think that journalism is much more interestingly examined and sexual relationships and murder in the girl with the dragon tattoo than here i think it's just yeah. a lot higher quality background noise i guess mm. like just the the signal that's being boosted by this versus that i just prefer the girl with the dragon tattoo in so many ways yeah and the social network is just an incomparable piece of modern criticism of journalism social media technology government systems government regulation humans just everything it's mm -hmm. it's one of the most i think postmodern films that exists because there is no good to that film yeah yeah i definitely think that like the sense of dread in those movies are more affecting and deeper um and ultimately maybe make more of a lasting impression he than than this which you know really does lean into that kind of humorous irony which i really I do like that. That is what I like about it, but maybe leaves it feeling not quite so weighty. Um, but just to make the last Hitchcock con connection, you know, the idea that it's partly about just kind of the, the narratives that we project onto certain images and, and the images that we're sort of beholden to. Um, I, I, I just, I, I find myself chewing on that kind of thing. Um, uh, even if I feel like it's, a little thin at the same time, you know, like when we first see Rosamund Pike at the halfway point, it's really just a bunch of exposition where she unwinds this for us. Mm -hmm. Um, but I still get something out of her, um, talking about what she has had, what she feels like she has had to do and then how she, you know, in turn weaponizes this to her advantage and then is using things like a camera in Desi's house to, tell this story that's going to lead her back to where she wants to be. I don't know. That all feels sort of like a Hitchcockian, almost rear window thing where you're, you're seeing these images and he's finding these stories in them. I don't know. I, I just, I just feel the kind of tissue between that stuff. I think there is a significant amount of tissue there. The thing about what you're saying though, is I love all of the Hitchcock stuff and I don't mm. love this. So I'm a little bit standoffish to the <laughs> allegory <laughs> um, because I feel about those, not the opposite, but very differently than how I feel about this. Like something that's written off as secondary Hitchcock, like Rope is one of my favorite films of all time, you know? So it's just that that's a, a 
creator, a director, a storyteller, someone who creates roller coasters that I just respect at such a different level than Fincher. Um, maybe that's a good conversation to to kind of begin to have as as we slow down here is knowing Fincher's belovedness in the film community or at least the film Twitter community, which is the most vocal part of the film (laughs) community, um, if not letterboxed. What do you think about Fincher? Do you think all the love is deserved? Is, do you love him as much as they do? Where do you land on this creator in context to the current social norm? Oh, I, I mean, I, I like Fincher, no doubt, just to put it very simply. Um, I mean, I do think he is one of the, uh, best, craftsman we have i think the stories he chooses to tell um are are just aren't at the top of the list of the kinds of stories i like to hear through cinema um you know these are thrillers um and when i'm in when i'm in the mood for a thriller when i want to shimmy to a thriller like you said he's my guy i'm gonna go there um it's just a matter i think of how much you value um, this kind of storytelling and um, you know I, I sort of really appreciate the distinctiveness of his brand like you watch a PTA movie and you can maybe identify some um, distinctive maneuvers or whatever but they all look and feel kind of different like you know Fincher when you see it like you, I just cannot resist someone that has a kind of authorship this dark ironic violent pulpy stuff like it, it's 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 always compelling um I, so I, I think it's deserved but um you know it's it's also something about the selection of the stories he tells that makes him maybe not the first person i would mention as one of my favorite filmmakers what I, about you i agree with much of that i think that a key word that comes to mind when i think about fincher is that he's a synthesizer before he's a director mm. um it, which to me means that he's trying to bring together a bunch of stuff and present it through the filmmaking medium rather than just view how to make a film. When I think of filmmakers, I'm going to think of Chantal Ackerman. I'm going to think of Agnes Varda. I'm going to think of Ari Aster. I'm going to think of Christopher Nolan. I'm going to think of Sean Baker. These are people to Mm. me that think first with their lens and second with their narrative not in a negative way, but just passively. I think that when Nolan thought of Interstellar, he was thinking, how can I shoot this? Before he thought, what am I going to write? So everything that he wrote was something that he had an idea for how he wanted to shoot and conjure an image in the sequence he wanted to go in. I think Dunkirk was something that he envisioned shooting rather than something that was an important story that he wrote a novel about and then adapted, right? Whereas... I think Fincher's on the other side. Tarantino's somewhere in the perfect middle where he writes a novel of a screenplay, shoots a film off of it, and then comes back and says, I want to write a novel off of my movie, right? Which is something that he just recently announced about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, Whereas Fincher, in all of his things, he seems to be trying to synthesize a bunch of ideas um, together. His directorial debut, he's trying to synthesize the sense of hopelessness that the first alien had, I think with the idea of a thriller a true sci-fi thriller and what he does is kill everything that brought you comfort in aliens and then trap you on a planet full of men who are prisoners 
who are largely there for murder and rape um, with no weapons and xenomorphs. And what happens is what happens. I won't spoil that exactly for you, but she's trapped without weapons for the first time and everything she loves is killed. That is a synthesis of ideas to me. And when I look at his films, they're all some version of a synthesis of a bunch of ideas a story, and then how to use a camera to, to tell that, which I think is just different than what I gravitate towards as, mm. as someone who's passionate about certain films. Well, that is much more thoughtful and interesting than me liking him as a cool thriller filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is a cool thriller filmmaker, so you got me there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I like that a lot. Um, yeah, I you know, I think about like the difference between Hitchcock in film history versus someone like Kubrick, who made all kinds of different films, war movies, um, horror movies, erotic dramas like Eyes Wide Shut versus Hitchcock was the master of suspense. He made like suspense movies with some with some deviations here and there, but you kind of knew what Hitchcock was all about. And I kind of feel similarly about Fincher. Like, I kind of know what I'm going to get when I turn on a Fincher movie to some extent, although I have not rewatched his filmography, so I understand that I could be taken to task for that. <laughs> I, I will say the curious case of Benjamin Button will throw a severe wrench in there. Word. True. And I think that, um, so th- there's two things that, that Fincher's very consistent with to me, and I, I might be wrong because this is just loose observation, but he always creates a point of view with the camera that feels fresh. He literally invented the point of view of the Xenomorph in Aliens 3, Mm. or Alien 3, rather. He shot first person an alien running along the side of a wall, essentially. So so we were in the Xenomorph chasing after Sigourney Weaver or the prisoners when they're trying to enact this plan. And in Gone Girl, he's constantly sweeping the camera back and forth to keep you in Ben Affleck's point of view field. And then when you get to Rosamund Pike, boom, solid, steady, no movement. But if you think about when Ben Affleck goes to answer the door at um, Margot's uh, house at night to greet Emily Ratajkowski's character, um, I can't remember her name for whatever reason. Can't remember either. Um, it's on a, a steady dolly, but it's moving. And then it moves back and then it's zooming out as they begin their lustful encounter. And then it's zooming in as they're getting dressed and then it's fading and it's cutting constant movement. And when it isn't moving, the environment's moving. Ben Affleck's opening up a door, glasses changing, cabinets are moving shadows. There's always movement. And I think that that ability to constantly propel and then shift the character perspective to something solid and static creates this background fundamental understanding for any sized viewer whether you like movies or this is just the only movie you're going to watch this year because enough of your friends told you to you're going to passively understand the story because of the background noise that he does and that is special i think um and that's one of the things that about his synthesis that allows him to play a high game of filmmaking whereas nolan's not going to act differently for each character with his lens he's just not that guy any of the Fincher movies you watched, you just flat out dislike? Or is this one of them? This is the one I disliked Closest. the most, besides Fight Club. Ah, uh, yes. Which reminds me of my other point, which is 
Brandon. Hmm. He's his use of marketing or branding in cinema is unique because in the social network, it's all about that. In the girl with the dragon tattoo, it's basically just about the millennium press and family legacy and that type of thing. And then we get to the game. That's all about a brand, right? Mm. Panic room. That's all about money. It's all about wealth. It's all about government wealth and the transfer of wealth after death. This film is all about, essentially the wealth of life, the wealth of how people view you. Um, Fight Club is all about branding and taking down credit card companies. As you know, there's something consistent with him about wealth, brands, that type of thing. That's interesting. Wayland enterprises or industries in alien three plays a big role. The game has a big role in that. Um, Michael Douglas's business, you know, and then the uh, GCP or whatever it is that runs mm. the game, right? Yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. there's just branding is very consistent for him. Yeah, um, yeah. One thing I have to kind of like remind myself to keep in mind about Fincher is that like when I think about, especially movie a movie like Fight Club, I do my mind does immediately think of that as like one of the broiest movies around right like i did you read my review i did it's spot on 100 <laughs> percent. like you know i just envision you envision dorm rooms with a bob marley poster and a fight club poster don't right? talk about my friends like that <laughs> oh and 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 it's not undeserved but i do think i almost like i yeah i do think he maybe has this reputation as a broy kind of filmmaker that i would almost like him to be like unshackled from in a way because that sometimes i think maybe taints my view a little bit where i'm like i don't really want to go watch fight club just because i kind of have that association with it but if i think i i think if i sat down and watch fight club i might not feel well that it goes i just actually refer, look at the text and not the culture <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact order i think it goes seven fight club and then Curious case of Benjamin Button. So, like, if you want to just remember that he's not a bro, just remember Seven, he's which like, is pretty not bro. <laughs> it's like, oh, you, well, I guess it's kind of bro. It's like, oh, what, you love girls? I'm going to cut her head off. <laughs> and then Fight Club is very bro. But then the Curious Case of Benjamin Button is Kate Blanchett not as a romantic bro. lead. That's as not bro as a cat's. Yeah. 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 That is fair. Um, yeah, he needs to go like full art house and then he'll never have that problem again, but he will lose 90% of his following. <laughs> yes. He also, you know, show ran and created House of Cards and Mindhunter, which he directed seven episodes of so far. Um, he's going to be releasing Mank on Netflix this year. That's something we can definitely count on because coronavirus has not yet affected Netflix. So unless the film has not completed production then we can count on it coming out because I think most post-production companies can work remotely right now. So it should still be on track if we're lucky. Um, what do you think about the tone change to make? That, that's actually ex like exactly the kind of thing I'm ex excited about. Like that is not bro-y. Something looking at like classic Hollywood and film history, like I'm all for that. Um, I would challenge you a little bit just because I recently started thinking about like, how would you make this movie that's anti Orson Welles? And mm. I do question how dark we're going to get because Orson Welles had some darkness. 
going to manage to Which, turn this into a cool you, thriller. I mean, <laughs> you've seen the same documentaries I have about Orson near the end. He got heavy. Um, the other side of the wind or other side of the wind. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. The doc or the yeah, actual I feel, one? When I say the other side of the wind, it makes me think of Gone with the Wind. And I'm like, these oh. can't be the same things. But in, in my film reptile brain, I say wind and I think of Gone. Um, yeah. The, the, what we understand him to be towards the end there is a very uh, abrasive man. And if this is going to cover mankowitz to a large degree who i i believe was involved in orson's life in some capacity until the end i do think it could be very dark and we have um gary oldman as our lead performer and he's not known to play a character in films that aren't slightly fucked up his most unfucked up film arguably would be the darkest hour which is about a bunch of people dying and trying to hold a country together. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm way out of my depths here now, but I think my understanding is that there is a camp who thinks that Mankiewicz did not get enough credit for his contribution. Right. I think that's fair. Cause I'd never heard about his contribution until much deeper into my film studies. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, like in college when I, had to watch that film and learn about it. Mankiewicz had nothing to do with the conversation. It was all Orson Welles centric. When it's talked about as the greatest film of all time, it's because it's Orson Welles. So I I do think there's a fair amount of credit missing, but then again, how much of it was just because of the way it was shot. Yeah. So now I'm just purely guessing here, but if it was in some way like demythologizing Welles and putting Mink higher up on the pedestal, Maybe that would alienate certain Wells devotees, but I would think any Wells devotee would already be familiar enough with that aspect of it that they wouldn't be bothered. So yeah, steal me and my favorite director. Go for it. <laughs> I don't know, um, but yeah, uh, this is one time that I'm glad it's on Netflix because it means we will actually get it. <laughs> Hopefully, yes. Um, he's also producing a TV movie of Chinatown. I'm not too familiar no idea. on that, that's cool. how that's going to turn out or what quality of TV movie that exactly is going to be. But he he's a man who's always had a lot of irons in the fire, so we can look to more content coming soon. It has been over six years since we've seen a film from him. Do you think that the the reasons for why he abandoned filmmaking are are good ones? I certainly don't like to see him abandon filmmaking. If he were to switch completely to episodic formats, I would be disappointed. I'll say that. I'm not terribly familiar with, like, the motivations behind, you know, uh, wanting to do things like House of Guards and Mindhunter. If it was just that the option was there and he did it. Um, I don't know that I have a um, strong opinion here. I I, I certainly value his um, feature film efforts. What about you? Yeah, I prefer his feature film contributions, but then there is something about Mindhunter that to me defines part of the television genre or, or the the reasons why episodic content can be great. I lump it in there with other forms of episodic detective storytelling. Um, you know, you can include Breaking Bad there. 
Um, I would include the limited series from Soderbergh, uh, Mosaic. There are great things about television that allow you to develop a character and get to know them as a crime hunter and the way that he constructed Mindhunter to be a, a triple factor is wholly interesting as a narrative storytelling because you know the closest type of thing we get is luther or bosch or um i believe the now canceled happy valley in england there it's very hard to get a, a high level um quality content that looks as good as mindhunter does but i'd just rather have film entries from him if i'm being honest yeah me too um and that said if i were to do something episodic if i'm if i'm gonna watch something episodic i i would like it to be venture at the same time which is kind of funny like i think something like mindhunter uses the episodic format well like these are all interviews like that makes sense to do it in an, in an episode what in an episode episodic format um versus something like the game of thrones which is more about holding the carrot out in front of you each episode yes. right which mindhunter does to some extent but there is a purpose to each individual entry so i think he has wielded that quite well but um yeah like i don't know i, I still want to see it on a big screen with strangers you know favorite scene in gone girl the murder the big murder no, hands down is that a surprise no. probably a boring answer but i it, think it's pretty it is dope. a boring answer but did you know that they had the materials to do that shot 36 times really wow 36 changes of bedding and clothing and lingerie and dress and uh, yeah because once you get that corn syrup on you you gotta restart um and fincher's a notorious shoot 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 over and mm. over and over guy I think my favorite scene is the, um, and this is because it's just one of my favorite scenes. And then anecdotally, it's awesome. The gummy bear sequence in which Tyler Perry Mm. is throwing gummy bears at Ben Affleck whenever he messes up. That was a preposterous amount of takes. I'm not going to throw a number out there, but I can tell you it was way too many takes. And it was stitched together like just perfectly to where you can't tell that it's a bunch of different takes you believe it's all just one frustrated ben affleck getting gummy bears thrown at him ending with carrie going to throw one at him and him swallowing it perfectly um but like the the one that goes into his collar that he then picks out and throws down that only happened once out of all the times Mm. that they shot so just knowing all the the finesse that went into editing that scene together um makes it my favorite we need more tyler perry in front of the screen in front of the camera agreed and that is gone girl that's our first deep dive film criticism episode um we'll see how many more of these we do maybe it'll come back forever maybe it'll just be uh, a couple months until next time that's another one in the can ah hour 20 that's longer than most of our regular episodes right correct now you don't